Asarco for a very short time had the tallest stack in the area, and that was a way to kind of disperse the pollution farther away with the idea to improve things, but it turns out that just spreads your problem around. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance. Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm your host, Sarah Smith. Today on the pod, the Sarco, arsenic, and lakes, with UW Tacoma Associate Professor Jim Gowell. The Asarco smelter left behind a legacy of pollution in Tacoma and other parts of western Washington. We'll talk with Gowell about the arsenic in local lakes left behind by the smelter. We'll also discuss Gowell's dedication to student research, his love of rock climbing, and the chair in his office that's almost too nice to sit in. All right, I'm here with uh, Dr. James Gowell, or Jim, as he likes to be called, right? Yes, please. Okay. Because oh, uh, I don't even let my students call me uh, Doctor Gal. So Jim, go by Jim. Makes me feel younger. Okay, (laughs) that's good. All right. Well, do you want to briefly talk a little bit about what you do at University of Washington Tacoma and tell us a little bit about your work in limnology? Uh, Sure. Uh, So I've been a professor now at UW Tacoma for 20 years, 20 plus years at this point, uh, and teaching all kinds of things in environmental science and environmental engineering and Limnology is just one part of what I teach, but um, it's basically the study of fresh water, but I focus on lakes. Um, so in my case, I have started getting into lakes back before I came to uh, Washington State. And then when I came out here, I was looking for something to study. And uh, it turns out there's lots of lakes right around here. So I started working on that end of things. So I teach classes on lakes uh, and I do research on lakes. So what is it about lakes that you find so interesting? Uh it's a good question. Um, uh, one, I like anything that gets me outside and call it work. Um, so in this case, uh, lakes are something that's interesting from an environmental chemistry standpoint, which is what I study. And I got into them. Uh, well, originally I got into them because when I was a kid, I used to go out on lakes and swim and do all that kind of thing. And so I thought that doing work on lakes sounded like a lot of fun. And then I get paid for going out and being on lakes. And so when I was in Boston before I came here, I happened to get an opportunity to do some work on a contaminated lake just outside of Boston called Spy Pond. Uh, And they had treated Spy Pond with arsenic back in the day, used to use it as an algicide. Uh, So they actually treated the pond with arsenic. And of course, arsenic is a metal, so it never goes away. It just kind of builds up. So we were studying what was going on with that old arsenic that had been sitting in the lake. And so um, that got me really interested in lakes because I was interested in metal chemistry. And then when I came out here, it just happened to be that, lo and behold, it's another place where there's arsenic contamination in lakes. So it's kind of how it all worked out. So for people who aren't from around here, can you maybe talk a little bit about the Asarco smelter and the arsenic in the lakes? Uh, So Asarco was a smelter that operated just in Ruston, Washington, um, which became a city actually because of the smelter. So it was a company town uh, originally. Um, and so it, it incorporated around that smelter. Uh, so it, it amazingly took uh, 
different like metal ores from around the the world actually that would be shipped into Tacoma and then they would more or less process it to get the metals out. So in this case, they originally were a lead smelter because there was money to be made by make, getting lead. And then it quickly became a copper smelter back in the early 1900s. So it started back in 1895, I think. Um, so it was going on for a while doing that, but it turned out that the the ore that they were getting happened to be high in arsenic naturally. And there was money to be made by making arsenic and selling it because people used it for herbicides and pesticides at that time. So they actually started to uh, pull out that arsenic that they got out of the um, out of the ore. Uh, so that uh, unfortunately would I mean that part of it's great. The problem is that smelting operations are notoriously bad at kind of cleaning up their effluents or their air emissions. And so Asarco for a very short time had the tallest stack in the area, and that was a way to kind of disperse the pollution farther away with the idea to improve things, but it turns out that just spreads your problem around. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, so how far how far did that pollution extend then? I mean, obviously in the water, but in the air, I'm guessing that would probably end up in lakes that are not close to Tacoma. And uh, how far does your work on that reach? Gotcha. Uh, so the air emissions, uh, a lot of them made it pretty far. Um, they can go quite a distance. And so to the north, it made it definitely into Lake Washington. So uh, made it up at least 30 miles that direction. Uh, so they've seen, you can actually see the signature of the old Asarco uh, uh, emissions in the sediments of Lake Washington. Uh, most of the stuff that I do spreads out about uh, 10, 15 kilometers. So up into Federal Way in King County and then down into Pierce County is most of the stuff that I do. So let's talk a little bit then about kind of what you're looking at. What do you what do you look for in the lakes? To walk me through kind of what you do. So first when I came out here and I heard well the reason I heard that there was an arsenic thing going on was that I found out I got a notice at my house that uh, my house could be contaminated with arsenic and lead from the Sarco smelter and um one being a first-time homeowner, I was like, well, that's a bummer, uh, so I have to deal with this. But then second, I was thinking, well, this is really interesting because I'm an environmental chemist and I study metal pollution. And so I'm the only person who thinks, oh, yeah, cool, um, there's arsenic and lead in the area. Um, so when I found that out, I looked around at what was out there. And really, there was a little bit of stuff done in lakes, but not much. Most of it had just been looking at soils and things. So... Um, I decided with my students to go out as part of our class to start collecting some information and collecting some data out on some of these lakes and uh, found the arsenic in the sediments because that's what would eventually happen is the arsenic kind of builds up and so you can see that signature. So we found that sure enough, there's plenty of arsenic in the sediments that kind of got transported there by the, the old stack. And so then I, the interest is, well, if it's just in the sediments, then it's not really a problem. It doesn't have so much of an exposure issue to people or to other organisms. So the next thing is to figure out whether it comes out of the sediments. So it turns out that's the, the problem part of arsenic is that it can come back out readily out of the sediments back into the water and be taken up by organisms and move through the food chain. So um, we found that, that for sure that some of these lakes were actually transporting ar arsenic back out. And so we got then kind of followed on that to figure out, okay, so now that it's getting into the water, is it getting into the organisms and so on? So that's sort of what I do is sort of look for how metals move around in the environment. How do they potentially uh, become an exposure issue? And then how do they get transported up into 
organisms and do they cause a problem? Do they actually cause a biological effect that we're worried about? Have you answered that question at all? I mean, obviously, I live in Tacoma too, so I remember getting those <laughs> those pamphlets when we moved here and thinking, oh, okay, well, I have kids and I don't want to expose them to something that's potentially harmful. But what, I guess, what kind of a, an effect does that does arsenic have on, you know, animals or people or what, what should we be aware of, I guess? Um, it's, well, that's part of, we went into it kind of looking both at humans and, and ecosystem health. So we were also interested in whether there'd be some effect on animals and sort of aquatic life. So we worked our way up. So we started looking at the base of the food chain, looking at plankton. So the little microscopic plants and animals that are in the lake. And so what we found was that certain lakes actually transport arsenic out of the sediments better. And the problem ones are the ones that are shallow uh, and what happens is that they actually transport arsenic out of the sediments, but it then it gets up into the part of the lake where there's oxygen present. So that's where the organisms live because they all need oxygen to breathe. And so what we're finding is in these shallow lakes that really don't get studied much that you get arsenic in the presence of the organisms, which causes really high concentrations to get into the organism. So the phytoplankton had super high, like 700 parts per million of arsenic in the organisms. And then then it starts to get transported through the food chain. So it goes. the nice thing is it's not like mercury. It doesn't go up as it goes up the food chain, so it doesn't biomagnify. It actually um, biodiminishes, so it actually goes down as it goes through the food chain because you can excrete it. So humans can actually excrete arsenic. Um, so that's what we found is that as it goes up, it does go down, but it's still at pretty high concentrations in the zooplankton. And then it, we've studied snails and crayfish and fish, and it definitely is getting into all of those. And now whether that's at problem levels, that's what we're trying to figure out right now. So working with the Department of Health to try to figure out what that that concentration in those organisms mean for people who might actually eat those things. Because it turns out that people do eat snails, crayfish, and fish. Um, we don't have we, – we monitor fish, right? We know something about that. We sort of expect people to do that. But it turns out crayfish and snails are also harvested by people, and yet there's no monitoring for them, and there's no fishery to know how many people are catching them or how many people are eating them. So that's our interest at this point. Hey, everyone. It's Sarah. I wanted to take a minute to talk about a story we recently ran on the university's homepage. The article is about UW-Tacoma alumnus Marco Barajas. Marco is a first-generation student that graduated in 2018 with a degree in environmental science. He now works in Gowell's lab helping process samples from local lakes. Barajas loves to get his hands dirty. When he's not up to his knees in muck, he's up to his elbows in grease working on cars. Barajas plans to pursue graduate school, and he's interested in water quality and plans to pursue that as a career. Read the rest of Barajas' story on the UW-Tacoma website. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your involvement with Wapato Lake here in Tacoma? Uh, so a lot of these lakes I've gotten sort of into or gotten uh, invested in because I went there with my class. So originally I went to Wapato just collecting data with my limnology class as a way to do real things with my students. So we try to not just do busy work assignments. So we try to collect data on lakes that somebody wants to know something about, and then we share that information. So originally we went to Wapato just as a class assignment and collect some info. And we knew at that time Wapato was 
going through one of its bad phases. Um, so it was super green, choked with algae, um, and was having these um, harmful algae blooms, so these toxic um, blooms that would shut down the lake for contact and, and swimming. And so because it just happened to be that we were collecting data on this lake, so when they decided to do something about it, they wanted somebody to be involved in sort of doing some work after they did a treatment on the lake. And so um, they the reason they did that was they did a treatment on the lake and they kind of messed up. Uh, and so they killed all the fish in the process of treating the lake and turned it electric blue. And um, it did work. It was just a problem with the way that the pH went in the lake. Um, so it cleaned up the lake, but they wanted to monitor it after that. So my group got involved in doing a whole year-long study um, with students and and uh, staff and myself. And so we did that for a year. And we've gone back and done some subsequent work when they've gone and treated again because the problem keeps coming back. So they went and did just another treatment a few years ago. So we've, because of our history of being involved there, we get asked to come in and be a part of those projects. So um, Wapato is one of those difficult urban lakes that just gets a lot of nutrient inputs and runoff pollution. It basically drains most of South Tacoma, goes into this one little lake. So it ends up, it's going to be a tough thing to to treat overall for a long time. And that's fertilizers and things that are getting into the lake causing that algae to bloom, is that? Exactly. So it's nothing, it's not an industrial source. It tends to be all your runoff from your yard, so pet waste and and all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, for a while it was that was the notorious thing back in the day is that it turned out that Tacoma Mall sewage was actually going into Wapato Lake because they had connected the pipes wrong. Uh, but they figured that out eventually and fixed that problem. Uh, but at this point, it's basically urban runoff that goes in there. So I read that you're trying to organize a statewide volunteer lake monitoring program. We've been working for a while. The Washington Lake Protection Association is an organization that I was the president of for a while um, and on the board for a long time. So it's a group that's interested in trying to advocate for lakes and to improve lake uh, quality and lake usage. And so um, one of the things that we don't have in this state is actually a program that monitors the health of lakes. Um, There was a program for a while that got its funding cut uh, back in the 1990s, I believe it was. And so really there hasn't been much kind of on and off sampling for a few things whenever there's a specific issue. But there's really not a good set of data that shows us how lakes are doing over time. And so part of what we want to do is try to get information that helps manage those lakes. So it shows, starts to show us when something starts to become a problem. It starts to, it gives us some data to compare to. Um, and it also gets people, the whole idea behind the volunteer part is getting people invested in and knowledgeable about what's going on in their lake so that they advocate for improving the lake quality or for decreasing yard runoff or actually dealing with fertilizer, things along those lines. So it's kind of for two purposes. It's to get the public really interested and knowledgeable about what's going on so that they're the people that are pushing for change. Um, And at the same time, it's also trying to collect some information so we can see when there is problems or if there's anything that's you know, changing over time that we can we can cut off early when we recognize that there's a problem that's coming up. So you you mentioned that you have a passion for combining your teaching and getting students out in out in the field and and doing actual science while they're in class, not just lecturing. And can you talk a little bit about that? Did that come from a personal experience you had? Do you feel like what does that mean to you? 
I would say that it didn't come from when I was an undergrad, we never got an opportunity to do anything like that. Um, I was in a relatively traditional civil engineering program. Uh, we didn't even learn how to write as part of my program, um, which is kind of interesting because that's the first thing you're asked to do when you graduate is to actually go write something. But no, there was no opportunity really um, in that to do that kind of work. I really got interested in that when I was in grad school. Um, there was a program at MIT where the you would actually bring on high school students or undergrads to work with you. Um, so the high school students were, were work with me for a summer. The undergrads would work on research projects. And it was a really cool way to involve um, other people in getting interested in doing research um, when they're not doing the sort of running the research themselves. And I just saw that like the benefits of that. I have um, actually ran into one of the high school students that work with me. She's now more or less an EPA official for the for Taiwan. And so ran into her someplace and she was talking about how big a deal that was and you know how it sort of influenced her. And so it's really yeah, I get evidence of from those former students of how much how big a deal it is. I even ran into this last week. I ran into a a former undergrad that worked with me at MIT 20 years ago who's uh, now works for the Silent Spring Institute doing research for public change and things along those lines. So I just I, I've seen it do really cool things for students. And for me, I get something out of it. I love working. I don't like working by myself. I love working with other people. And I and I learned that I like to teach that way. So just by working with people and learning how to involve them in things so that they feel invested in something and learning something in the process has always been something that I've gotten passionate about. So um, that was, I think, the first real experience that I had in it. And so I was really happy when I came here and it was a focus of an undergraduate institution. So that was something I was looking for by that point when I was looking for jobs, someplace where I could really combine teaching and research in the same place. As a student, that feels really impactful, too, to be able to get out there and kind of see what, what you've been learning about for, for weeks. We did that in my oceanography class. We got to go out on a boat and do some sampling in the water, and it was really exciting. It That's was really cool. fun. Yeah, it was Yeah, great. it's nice when it works out, too, because I think um, it's not always glamorous, right? I think at least not the stuff that my students do. So, you know, we've been doing outdoor research for a long time. So, yeah, it's really nice to be on a lake in the summertime. But in February, when you're having to break the ice with an oar that you have in the boat so you can actually get out and sample um, when it's below freezing is like the fun comes later, <laughs> I guess. It's type two or three fun, I think. Yeah, but that's real-world experience. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. It's real-world, all right, in yeah. February. Mm -hmm. So that passion also extends to the community. I read something about you working with uh, students at the Science and Math Institute. And besides getting the undergrads involved, I also recognize that what I'm trying to do is get more students interested in science and mathematics. And we... Um, Originally, when I first got here, part of it was we were only an upper division campus at that point. And so I was trying to get students that, that the community colleges invested in coming on and doing more science and, and stuff in environmental science with, with us. And so we started doing partnerships with the community colleges to try to get them, their students involved in research projects early on so that they also would kind of continue and be invested. And then we recognized that what we're also doing is we're missing a lot of students because they lose interest in science and math early on in the middle schools or high schools. And so I, I feel as a scientist that um, what we need to do is really recruit, especially underrepresented students at that level. So I've tried to involve 
high school students and middle school students in projects, real authentic research projects, so that they can see themselves as researchers, as scientists, so that they will continue and, and, and think that that's something they can actually do as a career. So I've done a couple different research projects all of all sorts with um, with K-12 students, and, and I help develop curriculum right now to try to make it easier for for teachers to incorporate that research into their standards that they actually do in the classroom. So um, we do a, a project called SEARCH, um, which is an acronym for a really long thing that I can't remember off the top of my head because I came up with it. Um, but it has to do with basically involving that authentic research. So we've done by, a lot of it has to do with pollution monitoring. So we've looked at muscles. So we use like the muscles in the uh, imputed sound as a way to monitor pollution that comes in. We've done insects. So the same idea using aquatic insects as monitoring agents. Um, so there's been a bunch of these. And I've had SAMI, the, the Science and Math Institute. I've had uh, Lincoln High School students. I've had SOTA students. I've had First Creek Middle School students and more. I was excited to read about your involvement with with filmmaking, too, and the Puyallup Watershed Documentary Film Competition. So I want to hear all about that because that's, you know, I'm a science communication nerd. I got into uh, film stuff totally from the back end. Um, So I was still at MIT, and we were involved in a a project that was – kind of comparing watersheds in multiple countries on multiple continents. And uh, this group was together. So it, was, it involved a, a university from Switzerland in Zurich um, or outside Zurich. We had another one that was in uh, Tokyo and then the one uh, MIT that was in Boston and then even some in, in South America. And there was this idea of, well, what can we do as a group that kind of does this comparative thing? And I came up with this idea. I had just watched um, A Civil Action, which is a movie – where John Travolta plays a lawyer, which is a really bad idea, but he does in the movie. Um, but I had read the book um, before, um, and it's basically about Superfund and, and this idea of how contamination potentially gets into the community. And one of the things that was obvious from there is that a lot of these things that we study are not visible to the public. And so we were really interested in in this idea about comparing across watersheds. How do you make that visible? And so I I shot off my mouth at some point and said, well, what we really should do is make a documentary about, you know, these sort of invisible problems so that people can see what's going on. And the people in the room said, that's a great idea. You should do it. And I said, I've never made any movie. I don't even have a camera. Um, So uh, I got put in charge of the project. And so about that time, I moved to um, take the job here in Tacoma, and so I actually made that first documentary while here using uh, people, students, one student and one staff member at UW-Tacoma. So we traveled to to Switzerland and Tokyo and Boston to shoot the whole video and made our first documentary. And so somehow that came out really well, and um, we did a good job. But the problem was at that point, now I lived somewhere else, and people are really e- – I find it really easy to say that, well, this happened somewhere else. It's not really applicable to me. So we made a second one here um, that was all about the Puyallup River. And that just got me into that idea of how video can work really well to get messages across. So the competition was an idea to take the Puyallup River watershed and get everybody to try to make short videos that we could use to get get out to the public what kinds of issues, these sort of invisible things that were going on. 
and have it turn it into a competition. So we've run it twice actually, and uh, gotten some good, you know, student. We have like grade school uh, like version, and then we have the high schools and college, and then the 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 pros. And so we've gotten really fun stuff out of it, and it's pretty amazing what uh, everybody comes up with. So um, we're hoping to do that again soon, actually. What do you think video does to kind of bridge the the divide between science and I keep saying regular people, but just <laughs> you know non scientists? What do you think? What do you think video does? It's just a visual way to take something that's more complex, I guess I would say. And I do also think that people people even in science we do a lot of things with posters and talks, but. We've learned, we've actually learned in the communication of science that you need to show things pictorially as much as you can. So even when you're doing posters or talks, you're not showing a lot of words, you're showing images. And so video is just another, a, a, like a longer way or a, a more involved way of actually getting those messages across. It also helps you get it across when you're not there. Um, and people are more likely to watch the video than they are to read a paper, uh, even if you write that paper very well. So I think that's really what it's all about. It's about trying to communicate science to people and video just ends up working a lot better. And one of the things we've learned over time, so as soon as I made this documentary, it was like 60 minutes long. I was like, well, that's too long, right? People don't like to watch things that long unless it's a blockbuster. So um, so then you just have to get shorter. So I think it's about that whole idea of, it's interesting because I feel like science and engineering have learned that we have to, like we've been told we need to communicate with people so they can understand us. And so it's been a lot bigger push in science to try to get across those things in different ways. I, I don't know if that's true everywhere. I want to ask you about rock climbing <laughs> because you teach rock climbing with Tacoma Mountaineers. I do. Yeah. How'd you get into rock climbing? Good question. Again, it has to do with one is I like to be outside. So anything that gets me outside, I love hiking, kayaking, everything. And then at some point when we were grad students in Boston, uh, a friend of ours was doing some of this. And we're like, oh, that sounds fun. You know, some other reason to go outside. And turns out there's a few boulders around Boston. So we went and climbed out there and had a good time. It's like, oh, this is really fun. And then we moved out here. And it turns out there's a whole lot of big rocks around here. And in looking for something, a community to get involved with when we moved out here because we had no connections family-wise. Um, the Mountaineers in Tacoma is a great group. It's kind of the perfect size. You get to know people really well, and everybody wants to go outside and do things. And so we got invested there and got really interested in rock climbing. I've done a lot of stuff in the mountains around here. So, again, I, I like giving back. So it was really a nice way to meet new people and um, to continue to go out and get climbing yourself is to go out and take others climbing. So, yeah, so for almost 20 years at this point, we've been helping teach some of the rock climbing classes and things there and out um, taking people outside and actually rock climbing. So still one of my favorite things to do. So do you do you get to go sample alpine lakes ever and bridge both worlds? Uh Nothing that requires rock climbing. That would be really fun uh, to actually haul of our research equipment up a rock and then get to an alpine lake. Um, luckily, that's next level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hey, that's coming right right next. Yeah. But uh, we have. I do stuff. Um, one of my research projects is at Spirit Lake, which is at Mount St. Helens. So we do actually have to hike in all of our equipment there. So it's about an hour hike each way, and we've been doing work on this lake that was affected by the eruption of Mount St. Helens, and that's been a blast. So I've been doing that for almost 15 years at this point where we um, look at the effects of, of 
the aftermath basically of that disruption and how it affects lakes. So another lake project I'm interested in. I like that you said it's a blast too. That was uh, unintended. Uh, that's right. Volcano pun. <laughs> <laughs> so there's this chair in your office that I've heard about, and it's a really beautiful chair. It's almost legendary on the campus. Uh, can you talk to us about this this chair that's almost too nice to sit in and and describe it to us? So the chair in reference here, so I have two, you know, like two chairs in my office, and one of them was given to me by my parents uh, when I graduated from MIT. So it's an MIT chair. Um, has, it has this insignia on the back. And it it is, it's just, it's a wooden chair, so it looks nice in the office, and it, it's kind of hoity-toity. It's not really, it doesn't fit in necessarily with me or the rest of my office, which is a mess. Um, but it's this one really nice chair. So I think it stands out really nicely because the rest of the office looks like a pigsty. <laughs> and But the funny thing is because there are two chairs, nobody feels comfortable sitting in the nice chair. So they always try to sit in the other one. So it's become somewhat of a psychological experiment. So I'll even leave my jackets and stuff on top of the other chair. Uh, and people will move those over so they can sit in that chair and not sit on the nice chair. So, yeah, at this point, it's kind of just my own psychological experiment to see what people would do with that. But it means something to me because my parents sort of gave it to me. But otherwise, it, it ends up being a really nice chair because nobody will sit in it. Thank you to our guests and thank you for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.